this week, just so you know, is can the Bible be trusted? We're going to be looking at the nature and the canon or how we got Scripture. Next week is why the Bible is so important, why we value it, the characteristics of Scripture. We're going to talk about authority, clarity, necessity, sufficiency, and inerrancy next week. Uh, And then the third week will be kind of how we apply it. How do I understand the Bible? Uh, That's the big word for that's hermeneutics, but that means the study, the interpretation, the proper application of the Bible. So just so you have an idea in your mind of where we're going over the course of the next three weeks, that's where we are headed. And so to get us back to where we left off last week, if you'll remember in the introduction. Uh, I gave you a couple of definitions of theology. One comes from Kelly Capick at Covenant College. Christian theology is an active response to the revelation of God in Christ Jesus, whereby the believer and the power of the Holy Spirit and subordinate to the testimonies of the prophets and the apostles as recorded in scriptures and in communion with the saints wrestles with and rests in the mysteries of God, his work, and his world. That's a mouthful, but it's a pretty good comprehensive definition, as good as one of, as I've been able to find about theology. But to sum it up, Wayne Grudem and John Frame put it this way, systematic theology is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? And so that's why tonight we're starting with the doctrine of Scripture, because we want to know what the whole Bible teaches us about any given topic. So with that, I'm going to pray, and Brian Ball is going to come and lead us through uh, our discussion tonight. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to gather as a church midweek. We thank you that there is a place in your church for the proclamation of the word through preaching, but certainly the New Testament talks about how the early church gathered around the apostles' teaching as well to understand the depths of your scripture, how it connects to our lives. And so tonight, as we look at this foundational issue of scripture, we know that the doctrine of scripture is under attack in many ways, even within the walls of many churches. And so Lord, I pray that we emerge tonight more confident, more sure of why we believe that the words of scripture are your words to us words to live by, words to apply to our lives and to our mission in the world. And so God be with Brian as he teaches, open our ears and our hearts and our minds and our lives to you in this place. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Brian Ball. That's a lot of enthusiasm for systematic theology. I got to tell you, y'all are my people. Yeah, I found the most academic possible book and was like, these are, this is my, wow, this is, that's just awesome. Y'all are, y'all are wonderful. And y'all are, we're, it's such an honor to teach you guys. Y'all ask such fantastic questions and you can see that you're engaged, right, with the word, with the Holy Spirit. And that's just so much fun as a teacher. That is so exciting for Jay and I. And we're just very, very thankful for you. Thankful to get this opportunity. And um, tonight we have the small topic of the word of God. Um, I, I, you know, and, and you start off with kind of why is this important? Why is it important to know the boundaries? What is the Word of God? What does the Bible say about the Word of God? What are these boundaries? Um, you know, every, every so often in the news, you'll see them pop up where they found a lost gospel, right? Something, something pops up out of a cave or, right, or lost gospel. As a matter of fact, I found an article from uh, the BBC that said, what do the lost gospels tell us about the real Jesus? Right? Wow. Well, wow. So we, we need to know what's in the Bible, why it's there, and what is the Word of God so we under, understand these things. And so I wanted to open up with, with, our, with what our church official statement is. So this is pretty formal. But this is our church's statement on the Bible. 
It comes from the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is our statement of faith. It's on the website. I gave you a link to it. But let's read through this. Let's start start here. So the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is the record of God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. The criterion by which the Bible is to be interpreted is Jesus Christ. Amen? The other thing that hit me in preparing all this stuff this week was... uh, it reminded me of one of the very first sermons. There's a guy named A.W. Tozer. Um, A.W. preached kind of mid-century. I think he died in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, he, was a, he was a pastor, a, a very deep preaching pastor in Chicago. Never had a very big congregation. Uh, when I listen to him, I wear a mouthpiece um, because I have had my head physically rocked back listening to his sermon driving down the road. Uh, one of the first sermons I heard from him was on John 3.16. was on that, that passage in John. And um, this was probably 50 or 55 years into his ministry. And he, and he, he read the scripture, and then it, there was a three- or four-minute pause. And then he said, I realize this scripture is in the wheelhouse of most pastors, right? It's their go-to pitch. He said, in the 50 years I've preached, I've only done this less than a handful of times because these words are too holy. And I thought about when the last time I looked at the Bible and said, and really, right, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips and seen the holiness of Scripture for what it is and had that reverence. And so one of the things I hope we walk away with tonight is being, it's, it's been a very humbling experience for me. And I hope that you come away with an awe of the word of God that we have in our hands and that we have access to, that we can study, right? And that you, like me, sleep too late to read it most mornings, right? Or are too busy to do something. That it makes us pause and remember and have reverence for what the Lord has given. Is that fair? All right. So let's talk about the Word of God. Now, what we're going to talk about is what the Bible talks about for the Word of God. And so the, the first thing is the Word of God is a person in Jesus Christ. You will want to warm up your thumbs because we are going to be flying through a bunch of Scripture. Okay, so I realize with your head down, and so if you want to grab with two hands, um, well, this is, we're, we're getting ready to roll. Okay, so the Word of God is revealed as Jesus Christ. And the first place that is, right, is, is it, well, the first thing that really came to mind was Revelation 19.13. talks about him coming back right on the horse. And it says he was clothed in a robe, dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Right, the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And, of course, with what Jay's been teaching, we go back to the beginning of John. And it's been a fantastic sermon series. Right, but John 1 opens with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right, so the word is personified in Jesus Christ. Right, we scroll on down to verse 14, and it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. A lot of times when we approach the word of God, we think it's full of wrath and things not to do. Right? 
What is the word full of? Grace and truth. When we walk away from encountering the word, what should we be filled with? Grace and truth, right? And that personification we've talked about, right? My favorite saying that you know, one day we're going to be able to give hope a hug, right? Because Jesus, Jesus is our hope, right? We're going to be able to give the word a hug. Right? So this is not some intellectual exercise. It's an understanding of who Jesus the person is. That's what the word of God is. Does that make sense? All right. The word of God as speech. Right? Speech by God. So this is God, God decreeing words. Let's run back to the beginning. So let's go back to Genesis. Right? 1, 3. And a decree, we start about God's decrees, right? A decree is, is a decree of God. This is the definition out of, out of, it gets out of Grudem. All right. A decree of God is a word of God that causes something to happen. Okay. A decree of God is a word of God that causes something to happen. Right. The prime examples are here in the, are here in the um, creation areas, right? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Right. God says something and that is the reality of it. God says something, and that's the reality of it. Right? We look down on 114, where he says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs for the days and years. Right? And when God said, Let there be lights, right, there was light. Right? Um, 124. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and birds and of the uh, birds. Uh, creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. Right? God said these things, and they were reality. And those are the decrees of God. And we go that's over, even over in the Psalms. We go over to Psalms 33. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. All right, so even, even the psalmist says, look, Right, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Right, that his word has that kind of power. All right, then we're going to talk about word, God's words of personal address, right, where God talks to somebody. And there are many examples of this through Scripture. Let's go back to Genesis 2, 16. By the way, I'm always a lot more comfortable. I have six pages of my notes and 11 pages of Scripture supporting it. So that always makes me, makes me feel a little more comfortable because um, I can't screw up God's word. All right, 2.16. And the, Lord God, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God is directly speaking to Adam. Right? This, is, this is God's voice being heard by Adam. He also spoke after, their, after they sinned, right on down in that chapter. If we go down to verse 16. Yeah, God, 16 through 19, 3, 3, 16 through 19. That's why I was confused. To the woman he said, I shall surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and you shall, he shall rule over you. 
And, he, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In the pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Right, Exodus 21, right before he, he gives the 20 verse 1, right before he gives the Ten Commandments, right? He says, and, you know, and God spoke all these words. And if we turn over to Matthew, Matthew 3, 17. Right, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Right, so it's not just in the Old Testament that he speaks. Right, but in the new, and these are these and these are these are the actual words of God, and come with His absolute divine authority and trustworthiness. Right, they're spoken in ordinary human language and immediately understandable. The fact that they are spoken in human language does not limit them in any way. Right, because there are arguments made that the human language is always quote imperfect unquote, and that must limit the authority or truthfulness of God's word. But actually the opposite is true, right? These words that God speak place an obligation on us, right? That they, an obligation for us to obey, knowing that to disobey them is to disobey God himself. Right? They carry that same weight. Now, I realize that's kind of a fine point, right? But that's important, that God can use human words to, for his perfect authority, for his perfect truth, right? And we can understand that. That makes sense? All right, God's words as spoken through human lips. So God rose up prophets, right? And there are a ton of these. Uh, These are human words by human speakers, but again, that does not diminish their truthfulness and authority. So let's start in my favorite book, Deuteronomy. Uh, Do 18, 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them to all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Right. Um, let's go over to Jeremiah 1.9. The word, the, then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, right? So the Lord put the, these words in Jeremiah's mouth. Um, let's see, Exodus 4, 12. Is that right? Now, therefore, go, and I will be, be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Uh, number, always fun to go to Numbers. Uh, numbers twenty two thirty eight. Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. How have, have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. And remember, we're told not to be like Balaam, Right? But he even used Balaam. Balaam realized, right, because the Moabite king kept trying to get Balaam to curse Israel. And so he'd put him up on a mountain, and Balaam would start speaking, and he'd bless Israel. 
To which the Moabite king kept going, what are you doing? Right? But we see God put Balaam, even Balaam, right, who we're told not to imitate. You can't, right, he, even he can't speak what, against what God has told him. Right? He has to speak what God's put in his mouth. Um, do one more. Let's go over to 1 Samuel. Fifteen three. That doesn't sound right. And that's really, yeah, that's not one. That's not one. Um, but you get you get the. There's a ton, and you can see the rest of these scriptures. There are a ton of scriptures where God puts His words in the mouth of the prophet and the prophet, and that's really the writings that we have in the Old Testament, the prophetic voice of God throughout time. Right, is what we see. We also see the penalty for falsely claiming, uh, speaking a message from God. And we go back to Deuteronomy uh, 18.20. Where he says, But a, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. That's fairly serious. Right? God takes that fairly seriously. Uh, let's go over to Ezekiel 13, 1 through 8, which will bring back traumatic uh, memories to, for some of you after I read the Ezekiel over us a while back. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision or uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Right, so God took that seriously, and that was a, in the time of Ezekiel. Right, that was a huge problem. These false prophets. That's why He spoke the condemnation of Israel over these chapters, right, thirteen through twenty-four. And the third form we have is God's written word, right? God, God, the so how He wrote when He actually wrote His word down. And so the Bible has several instances where the word was put in written form, the first of which, of course, is in Exodus 31, right, where the writing of the Ten Commandments. And that's really the beginning of the canon of Scripture, right? It was the first thing they wrote down. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with them on the Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So those are the first two. That's that's the beginning of Scripture, were these tablets, written with the finger of God. Right? And he goes on in 32.16. And said, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Right, we also go to 
The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Sounds a little exasperated. Let me go in here to verse 28, right? So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He ate neither bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant and the Ten Commandments. So that's the beginning of the written word, right? Um, in Deuteronomy 31, uh, he tells Moses to put these words in writing. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priest, the son of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years that they should set a time of the year to, of release at the Feast of Booths when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. You shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Right? And so he's now written down all of the law. Right? They, carry it, they carry it along with the ark. Um, other references to writing when we get out of the out of the Pentateuch, right? Joshua twenty four twenty six says, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And when he took a large stone, it was set up there at the Tenbrith and, and, and by the sanctuary of the Lord. So Joshua, right, starts writing things down. We go to Isaiah thirty eight. And now go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it be there for some time to come as a witness forever. So it was written down so that we can have it today. right? So it maintain as a witness to God. Um, Jeremiah 32. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. So Jeremiah was commanded to write all this stuff down. And again, it's posterity. We see over in 1 Corinthians, looking at what Paul, look at what Paul wrote. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So Paul's saying, right, if you're of the Lord, you will recognize. And that's a really important thing, by the way. Because the Holy Spirit in us helps us recognize what's the writing of the Lord. Right, what, what we recognize. And that will become really important when we get into the canonization part of things that we talk about. So the written form has several benefits. Right? The words are more accurate. Right? We, we can keep them preserved accurately. Uh, the written form provides more opportunity for inspection and study. And the written form is more accessible to more people. Right? You can get the written form out to more people, particularly once right, the printing press came along. You can get it out to more people than if it were just verbally recited. Um, The quote was, Thus the reliability, permanence, and accessibility of the form in which God's words are preserved are all greatly enhanced when they are written down, yet there is no indication that their authority or truthfulness is diminished. Right? So our study is going to be, of course, of the Bible, right, of the written word. And so that's that's where we're going to get into the canon of Scripture. And I love this quote. I think this quote was out of the Yale Anchor Bible Dictionary. But I, I thought this was really, this is just very powerful. This is one of the things that hit me as I was studying this stuff. It said, the importance of the one who speaks these words deserves special mention when the speaker is God or God's representatives. The power of the words spoken by God directly or through a prophet is to be related not to some mysterious power which the spoken word itself possesses, 
but to the power of the speaker, right? It is God who has an ongoing relationship to a word spoken, who brings about the fulfillment of the word, not the word in itself in some autonomous way. Fulfillment is a testimony to God's work, not a word's power. And an atheist one time asked me, is the Bible a set of incantations? If you say stuff, does that therefore make God do stuff? Right? That's not the way it works. Right? The word is a revelation of God to us. Right? The power is in God. Right? Jesus, I too am a man under authority. And so the Holy Spirit brings these words to life. I love the words that God has an ongoing relationship to the word. Right? It's his son. Right? We call it the living word. Right? Because of God's ongoing relationship. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? That God has an ongoing... That as we, and that's, which goes back to the reverence that, that I think we dismiss sometimes toward the word. Right? That this is God's ongoing... He, this is a living word. Right? Alive, made alive in us through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? All right, I'm not sinking in time. That's good. All right, the canon of Scripture. And this is the definition of a can- the canon. It said, the canon of Scripture is a list of all the books that belong in the Bible. All right, that's pretty straightforward. And so if we're going to study God's Word, right, how do we know what books do and don't belong? So what was the process that kind of arrived at the books that we have, right? And it's important, and we go back again to Deuteronomy. Um, back to Deuteronomy 32... 44, which is among my favorite verses. It says, Moses came and recited all the words of the song in the hearing of the people, and he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, and that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. This is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Right? This word is life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Right? The word we have is life to us. That's why it's so critical. That's why it's so important. And so they began, the collection of the Word of God began with the Ten Commandments and grew throughout history, right? Joshua added to the writings. And that's pretty interesting, right? Because Deuteronomy 4 2 says, don't add or take away from these writings. And what we take the scope of that to be is the Pentateuch, right? The first five books of the Bible. Because Joshua must have been very convinced that he was not taking upon himself to add to the written Word of God, but that God himself had authorized such writing. Does that make sense? That's a big difference. And Joshua going, you know, I think we need a couple more verses, right? To God saying, this is what you were commanded to do to write. And we read in Joshua where God commanded him to write. Um, and other writings would be added mostly from the office of the prophets. So let's go over to 1 Samuel 10, 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. 
then Samuel sent all the people away, each one according to his home. So Samuel wrote a book. First uh, Chronicles 29, 29. When we get into Chronicles, everybody wrote a book. It's kind of like today. Sorry, that was a side comment. Um, now the acts of King David from the first to the last are written in the Chronicles of Samuel the seer and in the Chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the Chronicles of Gad the seer. And with all accounts of his rule and his might and the circumstances that he came upon and upon Israel and upon all the kingdoms and the countries. Uh, let's go to Second Chronicles twenty thirty four. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat from the first to the last are written last are written in the chronicles of Jehu the son of Hanani, who are which is recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. Second uh, Chronicles twenty six twenty two. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from the first to the last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. And Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they were buried with him as fathers in the burial field that belongs to the kings. Um, and so Isaiah the prophet right, wrote about that. Um, let's go over to Jeremiah 32. Thus says the Lord of God, write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. So Jeremiah was commanded to write his book. And the Old Testament grew, right? It, it, it's, it's the narrative of the people of Israel. Right? It started with the Ten Commandments, this long flowing history, right? Through the, through the kings, through, through coming to the promised land, the kings, right? The, it, having a king that, you know, God wanted to be their king, but they appointed a king to David and Solomon, right? When we had Steve Ortiz talk about that period, that he's in, you know, the world's leading archaeologist in that period. And then through, through kings and chronicles, right, as they struggled in two, as a divided kingdom until they were finally wiped out, right, and sent into exile in Babylon, and then they come back, and when they come back, that's when the final writings, right, the writings of Nehemiah, the writings of Esther that we see, are really the final writings that, in Jewish history. And we, there were other writings, and we talked about this when I taught the intertestamental period a few weeks ago. We talked about there were other writings, and most of that teaching was done in these writings, and they're called the Apocrypha. And we're going to get into those in a little more detail in a minute. But there were these, they, the Jews did continue to write, but it wasn't done in, a, in the same spirit of the prophets. And as a matter of fact, the Jewish people recognize that. So let me, let me give you a couple of quotes. The first is from 1 Maccabees, which is one of the uh, apocryphal books. And it said, So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell, what to do, or tell us what to do with them. So even in Maccabees, right, they recognized that the prophetic voice that had been with Israel all this time was silent. There was no one there to speak with the same authority. Right? Uh, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who wrote about the time of Jesus, and he's probably the leading historical authority on the intertestimonial period time and, and certainly the first century. And what he says, from Xerxes to our own time, a complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. Right? So Josephus, the, the premier Jewish historian of the first century, recognized that there was a time where this voice ended. Right? And there was no longer a prophetic voice in, in Israel. 
um, the rabbinic literature of, the same, of, of that same time shows a similar vein of thought. And this is, I have not dug deep enough into this. I was not feeling well this weekend, so I apologize. And this is one of my, I've took a bunch of notes of things I want to go investigate. And this is one of, they thought that in the Holy Spirit, in his function of inspiring scripture, had departed from Israel. After the latter prophets of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi had died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel, but they still availed themselves of the Bathquah, which is the voice of God, the Hebrew for the voice of God. So basically they said that after those prophets, the prophetic voice left Israel. So there's this consensus among the Jews that the writings of the Old Testament ended, right, in, in these prophets, ended in these prophets. Does that make sense? And so we also see, you know, the other key we see on the Old Testament is there's no dispute between Jesus and his disciples and the Jewish leaders and Jewish peoples on what, extent, what composes the extent of the Old Testament. Right? There's nowhere where either Jesus or the Jews quote Scripture where the other one goes, that's not in Scripture. Right? So they both, they quote, and the, and the Old Testament is quoted over 295 times by Jesus and the New Testament authors. So there's lot, lots, of, lots of quotations out of this that show that they, that, they, um, that they recognize the same thing as Scripture. All right. So how did the Old Testament canon kind of come together? We see the earliest list of about 170 A.D. Um, by Melito, the bishop of Sardis. And he has all of the current books other than Esther and, and none of the Apocrypha. And then uh, Eubus quotes Origen, which is one of the early church fathers, that confirms our current list of the Old Testament canon. And in 367 AD, that's the first time the Bishop of Alexandra brings together actually the whole list of the Old and New Testament. We'll get to that in just a minute. But that's really, that's really where we start getting our full list. I want to talk a little bit about the Apocrypha, because the only really disputed books on whether or not they should be in the canon of Scripture to, to date... Right. So once this was all kind of formed back in the early early couple of centuries, is the Apocrypha. And if you pick up a Catholic Bible, the Roman Catholic Church in, in 1546, we'll get to that, the Roman Catholics said that the Apocrypha is the equivalent of Scripture. And so we as Protestants obviously do not recognize that Scripture. They are, they are very, very important books. They're very important books from the history. As again, I said, when I taught the Intertestament period, most of my references were from the Apocrypha. And so it's, it, these are not illicit tomes that spread lies. They're not scripture. Um, they were translated as part of the Sephagent. And the Sephagent was 70 scholars-ish. That's how it got its name. And it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it occurred during Alexander. And the Apocrypha, plus actually some other books, were part of, were part of that translation. They just kind of translate, it seems like, everything in Hebrew, everything they could get their hands on. Um, it was also part of Jerome's translation into Latin in 404, which is the basis. The Roman Catholics believe that Roman translation of the Bible was the first, quote-unquote, first translation of the Bible and the authentic translation. Um, and they were translated there. But uh, the Apocrypha was a collection of books in a canon that the Roman Catholic, it's held as scripture by the Roman Catholics, Catholics but not Protestants. There is no statement from the book of the Apocrypha that is quoted as divinely authoritative in the New Testament. We talked about, if you'll remember, when we taught on Jude, right, there was a cultural reference to it, to the book of Enoch, 
that said, but it was, you know, we all have all read Enoch and know this to be true. It's like referring to a movie or referring to a book or a, a book or a common cultural touch point, but was not brought in as, as um, authoritative. Uh, the Apocrypha was never considered scripture by the Jews, but was disputed in the early years of the church. Um, the earliest Christians rejected the Apocrypha, and as I said, it was you know, introduced in 404 AD in the Latin Vulgate uh, by Jerome, although Jerome said that they were not books of the canon, but books of the church. So he said, all the books we have that are in our Bible are books of the canon, which is what we would agree with. And then he said the Apocrypha were books of the church. So even he said those are different than, than Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church officially declared the Apocrypha to be part of the canon at the Council of Trent in 1546. It was a council held in response to the teachings of one Martin Luther about the Protestant Reformation, which is kind of where we came from, right? Um, the Apocrypha contains support for the Catholic teachings of prayers for the dead and justification by faith plus works, not faith alone, right? And that's a really big point. That's a really big point. Really big point. Right? The Roman Catholics believe the church, and this is also really big, has the church has the authority to constitute a literary work as scripture. So the church has the authority to take something written and go, that's scripture. We do not believe that. Okay? Protestants hold that the church cannot make something to be scripture but can only recognize what God has already been caused to be written in his words. That's, those are two really different... That seems very similar. Those are two really, really different things. Does that make sense? So we can recognize God when God wrote something, right? We recognize the Holy Spirit in us, right? The sheep know his voice. We can recognize when God writes something. We, can't, we don't have the authority to take something Jay wrote or I wrote and go, you know, that's scripture. Praise be to God, right? Does that make sense? That makes sense? Okay, good. Good. Um, and, the, the, and then he gave kind of the reasons. Let me give you kind of a list of reasons. The Apocrypha, the writings of the Apocrypha should not be regarded as Scripture because, one, they were not regarded by God as God's words by Jewish, the Jewish people who they originated, which seems fairly straightforward. Um, they were not considered to be Scripture by Jesus or the New Testament authors, and the teachings in them are inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. There are books on this. Okay, there are books. There are actually books on just about any point that I've made so far. And, and so we're summing things up. If you have interest in any of these things, you can find inf almost infinite depth going into the Apocrypha, what it, right, what it was, why it was canonized, why it's not canonized. So Christians today should understand the canon of the Old Testament has not left anything needed out, nor include anything that is not God's words. And I love, F.F. F. Bruce had a great quote. He said, it's incredible the number of people who were converted in the New Testament through the reading of the Old Testament. Right? You think about the eunuch reading Isaiah. Right? Isn't that incredible? The, the power of the Old Testament. And there's a movement, right? You see movements among the, among the Protestant church to, to disregard the Old Testament. Right? That's just crazy. Right? That's just crazy. I mean, there's so much, of, so much richness. And, and really, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you can't really understand the New Testament. Right? I mean, understanding the, the, the Torah, understanding the Pentateuch, right? Those first five books changes the Gospels. Right? Because that's where they're rooted. That's where Jesus' world was. 
right? That understanding of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah coming, is just is such a blessing, such a blessing, right? And so that's where we depart from our Jewish brothers. And I also love this quote, and I didn't cite it, so I apologize to whoever I'm stealing this from. Christians did not change the Jewish texts. They found its fulfillment in Jesus. If you know the ending of the Old Testament, right, leaves things open. The Jews are back where they started, right? There's still no Messiah, right? They're, they're, they're back where they started. And we get to see that into the hope that is Christ, right? How cool is that? How cool is that? And so we differ with our Jewish brothers on the interpretations. I have good friends who are Jewish that I have, that I have breakfast and lunch with, and we differ on the interpretations of the Old Testament. And that's okay. It's, it's wonderful to talk. It's wonderful to learn, right, and listen. But we have very different understandings of these things. Very different understandings. All right, so let's do the New Testament canon. I kept thinking this was about 10 minutes of material, and I think I was wrong. All right, so the New Testament canon. Um, The canon begins with the writing of the apostles, right? The apostles were given the ability by the Holy Spirit to accurately record the words and deeds of Jesus in the early church and interpret them rightly. So we're going to quote a couple parts out of the Upper Room Discourse over in John. We'll go to John 14, 26. The upper room discourse, right, was Jesus' kind of last words to his, to his disciples, right? He was getting ready to go in. This is kind of his big, big speech. If you're ever discouraged, read John 17. That's where Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for you in the New Testament. Praise be to God. All right, John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit, right, engaged with the apostles, the people that were appointed to that, to that position, to write. And so we look at John 16, 13, and 14. When the Holy Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, right, so their voice, the apostolic voice, was seen in the same vein as the prophets of the Old Testament. That make sense? So they were, they were seen. Paul demonstrates his writing as a command of the Lord. We read that back, right, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. And when asked to defend his office in 2 Corinthians 13, 3, he said he would give, quote, proof that Christ is speaking in me. And uh, Paul was pretty excited about, it was pretty definitive all right, about God speaking through him. So let's go over to Romans 2, 16. Uh, on that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So Paul's talking about the authoritative way that God brings the word through him. Through him. And you can see there's a, a, whole set of, a whole set of scriptures in this. This I found fascinating. Um, there are two instances of the, in the New Testament of the of the scriptures being referred to in the New Testament as second, let's go to 2 Peter 13, 3, 13 and 15. 3, 15 and 16. I can speak in English. And this is, this is fascinating to me, and I'd never really thought about this um, until this week. It said, and, and count the, the, 
the patience of our Lord is salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So he's talking about Paul's writings on the same level as the other scriptures. Right? And the Greek word there is graphe. G-R-A-P-H-E is the transliteration. It's translated 51 times in the New Testament. Every time it refers to the Old Testament scriptures. Every time. And so this puts Paul's writings, right, on par with the Old Testament scriptures. The other one is over in 1 Timothy 15, uh, 5, 17, and 18. Let the elders who rule, rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, J. For the scriptures, they didn't have J in there. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads over the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, the first quote, right, that, the, that you shall not muzzle, muzzle an ox is from Deuteronomy 25.4. The second quote, which says a laborer deserves his wages, is only found in one place in the Bible. It's in this exact Greek in Luke 7. So they're quoting Luke just like they quote Deuteronomy. Which again gives us indication. And by the way, Luke was an apostle. He was closely associated with Paul. We'll get into that in just a second. But it's quoted, right, with scriptural authority. I thought that was really, I thought that was just fascinating. Was just fascinating. So if we look at the apostolic, the books written by apostles, we see Matthew, John, Romans to Philemon, uh, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Okay, so that leaves us Mark, Luke, Acts, Hebrews, and Jude. Um, Mark was thought to be a recount of Peter, so it had very close apostolic association. Um, Luke was a close associate of Paul, which takes, takes Luke Acts, right, as, as, as a single work. Um, and Jude was written by James, the brother of Jesus. So that kind of puts everything but Hebrews, right, into kind of one, into kind of the apostolic realm. So that leaves us with Hebrews. And Hebrews was initially thought to be written by Paul, um, although very early on that was, that was pretty much dismissed. Uh, Origen, who's one of the early church fathers, concluded, but who actually wrote the epistle, only God knows. So Hebrews really is of pretty much unknown authorship. But that's where kind of the, the, the real criteria for a book to be in the canon is divine authorship, right? The apostles and their close associates had that given to them through the Holy Spirit. It should not surprise us that the early church recognized the voice clearly in Hebrews, right? Because John ten twenty seven says, my sheep know my voice. And we see the consistency over time for, of, of inclusion for the church to recognize this work as God breathed. And so the process, what was really beautiful was this process went on for a few centuries, and the letters were circulated, the books were circulated, and they, what the canon was kind of finalized in a, in a letter to, in the Paschal Letter of Athenus in three, 367 AD, and, and finally by the Council of Carthage in 397. And this was not, by the way, a gathering of people who, who sat down and they said, okay, who likes Luke? Right? That's, that's not how this process worked. What this was, was and, and what, I, what, I, what I've kind of come down to, it was the work of God through his people. Right? These were the works that all of the churches found authoritative. 
that all of the all of the churches recognized the voice of God, recognized that He had written that the Holy Spirit lit them up. They recognized the difference in these things, and these councils were just a consolidation of that. Right? It wasn't an election. It wasn't a declaration. It was a recognition of God's work in these words. Does that make sense? That's a that's a big because there's this misconstrued. Right? You see the movies, right? The where they, you know, they vote on scripture or vote on. And the Catholic Church does believe that, right? That's, we talked about that with the Apocrypha. That is not what we believe. And that is not what happened in these councils. Does that make sense? And so how do we have confidence that we have the right canon of scripture? Uh, one, and I think the big, and this is kind of what I'm talking about here, right? The power of God working in and through his people. Uh, first was apostasy. We talked about that there was apostles, right, that wrote most all of these works. And that was certainly the first, one of the first marks. Uh, one was conformity, right? Did the books conform to orthodoxy, right, the Christian truth? Was it normative through all of Scripture, right? And so what we saw in some, if you read some of the apocryphal books, there are some really strange teachings, I mean, really strange, non-Orthodox. And so that alone, that's inconsistent with all the rest of Scripture. And so that alone would cause us to, to reject them. Right? And the other is Catholicity. And that's, did the book have widespread and continuous acceptance and usage by the churches everywhere? And so that's what those councils did. They brought together the churches from everywhere and made sure everyone recognized those same books. The other thing that confirms this is, I believe, the power of God working in and through us. When we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit enlightens us, right? It is different than reading anything else. Those of us who are saved, right, when we read the Word, it is different, right? Amen? It's different. And so the Holy Spirit confirms in us, right, that there's, that, and, and there are no works, other, like I say, other than the apocryphal works, which were really said long ago, there are no works in controversy to be added or subtracted from the canon. Right? And, the, and the historical work of the word, we have the testimony of people over millennia of the power of this word in their lives. Right? The power of this word. We see it in our family. We see it in ourselves, right? What the word has done in our life. The word has done it for us. And so the final quote right there is, the, therefore historical confirmation for the historical correctness of the current canon. Yet it must be remembered in connection with any historical investigation that the work of the early church was not to bestow divine authority or even ecclesiastical authority on some merely human writings, but rather to recognize the divinely authored characteristic of writings that, had already, that already had such a quality. This is because the ultimate criterion of canonicity is divine authorship, not human ecclesiastical approval. Right? And so why does this matter? And what kind of hit me about what matters? And this leaks over into Jay's teaching next week. Is authority. Right? This work, these words have authority. Right? They have authority in our life because of how it's written. They ha- it, we have, it has authority in our lives right? because this is God's word. This is how things really are. When he speaks, things come into being, including life. Right? They have authority. What I've observed from so many of us, right, on so, like, particularly on social media, you know what we give authority to? Things that agree with us. Right? Right? We don't look at what the source is. We don't look at who said it. 
We just want to know if we agreed with it. If we agree with it, then we forward it, right? Or we, right? And so authority is deemed by what's right in my own eyes, right? Right? That's not where authority comes from. Authority comes from God. All authority in this world is given by God, right? Any authority in this world is given by God. And so we have to come back to his word. This is the true source of authority, right? This is the normative, right? This is the plumb line, the measurement for everything we do and everything we think. We good? Everybody awake? That's good. You look, was this helpful? Outstanding. Outstanding. Did anybody get any questions? This is going to be, this should be terribly exciting. <laughs> oh, mercy. Uh-oh. He's sneaking in. All right. All right, right. There we go. All right, thank you, Brian. And uh, way to go, staying awake while that gentle patter of the rain was on the roof, right? It's kind of hard to do. So <laughs> mostly your, your soothing voice. Uh, a couple things I want to jump into. If you're looking at the questions, I'm going to go to the one that popped up at the top in a second. And then there's a story behind one that really has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. But I'll give you the backstory uh, for fun. But while we're on the issue of, of the canon itself, um, one of the resources I recommend at the bottom, and let me highlight those really quickly as well, um, is a resource by Robert Plummer, who's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's kind of cool. His parents are members the Brentwood campus. Uh, and so he visits down here with, with us regularly, but he's a New Testament professor there. He has a really helpful short book called The Story of Scripture. If you want the classic by F.F. Bruce's, the canon of Scripture, uh, and so that's the one that, you know, so engineers like Brian love to dive into. Uh, but this is really, really a short read. It's like 75 pages long, uh, but it's called The Story of Scripture. A couple of helpful things. One about the Old Testament canon. Uh, Here's what he says. There was a progressive recognition of certain books as being canonical right from their inception by readers and listeners who are contemporaries with the writers and who are thereby in the best position to determine the claims of the writers. That's the best way to sum up the Old Testament, that the Jewish people said, these people, right, are walking with God, speaking for God. And he goes on to say this. It seems clear that by the time of Jesus, most Jews were in agreement as to their own canon, a list that matches our current Old Testament in content. Here's the important part. Jesus and his apostles affirmed the Jewish canon of the Hebrew scriptures in their day. So as a follower of Jesus, I affirm the same. In other words, if it was good enough for Jesus and the apostles, like it's good enough for us. Uh, And we know Jesus quoted extensively from the Old Testament. Uh, We know that he used uh, the Old Testament in his own teachings. We know, for example, when it came time to refute, right, Satan and the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus quoted scripture from the Old Testament, specifically from the book of Deuteronomy, Brian's favorite book. Brian's like, all roads lead back to Deuteronomy, uh, one way or another. And so it's just important for us to remember that. And that's the most compelling argument for us, that Jesus and his followers believed these words to be authoritative. Uh, And uh, one of the things that I'll bring back out, if you haven't seen it, actually somebody emailed me for it this week, is that I have a visual representation of the 63,779 cross-references between the Old Testament and the New uh, that an MIT student partnered with a pastor uh, to produce, just to give you a visual representation of how many times, right, uh, the New Testament refers to the Old Testament. 
old. Uh, and so it's just a compelling one of those pictures is literally worth 63,779 words. Uh, so that's about the, the Old Testament. Uh, when it comes to the New Testament canon, let me have you write three words down in your column that it'll just help summarize this in your mind. Word one is apostolic. It was either written by an apostle, as Brian mentioned, or someone who was a, an associate of an apostle, right? Like uh, uh, John Mark um, and so uh, with, with Peter. And so, uh, so recognize that. So apostolic, there's an apostolic connection, a direct relationship uh, to Jesus. Number two is the word you could write Catholic or you could write the church. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic church here. We're talking about the church universal, meaning all of the early churches, right, affirmed uh, that this was scripture. And then the third word is orthodox, it did not contradict uh, any of the other writings or scriptures or truth. Sometimes that shorthand is just helpful. Brian said all of those things, uh, but sometimes it's helpful to have it uh, in uh, kind of one place in that regard. And here is another quote from uh, Plummer. He says, The fact that substantially the whole church came to recognize the same 27 books as canonical is remarkable when it's remembered that the result was not contrived. In other words, it wasn't predetermined. All that the several churches throughout the empire could do was to witness to their own experience with the documents and share whatever knowledge they might have about their origin and character. When consideration is given to the diversity and cultural backgrounds and an orientation to the essentials of the Christian faith within the churches, their common agreement about which books belong to the, Old, to the New Testament serves to suggest that this final decision did not originate solely at the human level. I love that. I mean, think about that. It, it just increases my faith even more to know that there wasn't one group of leaders or one group of guys sitting around. Instead, the Holy Spirit guided all of the early churches to the same conclusion that these books are in the canon. These books bear witness to Jesus and his apostles. Or, right, these books do not. Right, and, and then so, and those are the so-called lost gospels and these kind of things. And that gets at one of the questions that some of you ask: uh, What about those books? First of all, I would say uh, when it comes to the apocryphal books, some of you ask how many, and even that's a little bit of a complicated answer because the questions are uh, the number of apocryphal books that the Roman Catholic Church recognizes is, if I counted right, eleven, but the Greek Orthodox Church recognizes sixteen. That's another story for another day. And if you want a Bible nerd out over that, right, there's lots of resources that'll take you down that rabbit trail for a while. But those books, the intertestamental books, so I believe, of course, are not on par with Scripture. They're interesting to read. I've had to read and interact with several of them for papers and some academic work that I've done. Um, some of them, like the Maccabees, are more historical, so they fill in some of the gaps. Uh, but obviously, they are not on par with Scripture. So as I would say about anything, if you're a busy guy like I am, right, I'm going to always prioritize the study of Scripture. If I have time, like I would read a novel or something else, I might look into those other books uh, just out of uh, historical curiosity. Uh, but they are not on par with Scripture. The books that are non-canonical from the New Testament, i.e. the Gospel of Thomas. Again, historical curiosities, but they do not carry an ounce of authority. So don't put any weight in them uh, when CNN, and this usually happens around Easter, by the way, every time, every year, the CNNs of the world, the Newsweek magazines, the Time magazines are always going to try to sensationalize something. You know, there's a new lost gospel that's been discovered that makes us rethink Jesus. And honestly, in your mind, you need to go, it's not new. The church has known about those books from the very beginning and said they're not in. 
All right, that's the, you, can, you can say that. There's nothing new that's discovered. No, no discoveries, right, that radically change anything that we've, we've known before. Those books have been around. They've not really been lost. We chose to not acknowledge them as Scripture, as God's people, as the church, because they didn't match those three rules, apostolic, orthodox, universal, right, uh, in their application. All right, there's a few things I wanted to say. Let me point out some of the other resources there. Um, Grudem and Erickson are two systematic theologies, so I'm listing each week uh, that many of you have. Uh, and so I'm listing each week the sections we're pulling those from. Kevin DeYoung has an excellent book, Taking God at His Word. Uh, we'll, we'll pull from that a little bit next week. I already mentioned the FF uh, Bruce and Plummer books. Uh, Timothy Paul Jones, uh, who's also at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, good friend of mine, he's spoken at this church before, has a good book called Why I Should Trust the Bible. And if you are looking for, to, to communicate with a student, college student, uh, he's an excellent apologist. And so the way he thinks, the way his mind thinks, that's a really good starter book. Uh, I see Hudson nodding because I gave him a copy of that book to read. Uh, and then just out of interest, Tim Challies and Josh Byers have done a really cool book. It's called A Visual Theology Guide to the Bible. And so they use a lot of infographics uh, to help some of this information that you've heard just kind of come alive. Uh, see it in a snapshot. That's helpful. And then online, there's a really interesting tool. And a couple years ago when we went through the Bible, I recommended it. I would recommend it to you again. It's called The Bible Project. Uh, and they have helpful summaries of every book of the Bible, six or seven minutes long. Uh, they have four videos that are each six or seven minutes long about how we got the Bible. So for kids, families, even for you guys, it's a really cool way that they do it. Um, the, the Bible Project, I've read a couple of critiques. I've tried to look around on there myself. I've not seen anything on there that's not orthodox, that's not uh, solid. Uh, just one quick side note. Somebody wrote an article saying they're a little weak on their theology of the atonement in some of their videos, uh, pulling things together. But again, that's kind of splitting hairs. Um, the theology of the atonement is super important, but but uh, obviously it's in there in the videos that I've seen. So uh, that's more on their, the, the, the doctrine side of their videos. But their actual videos about the Bible, how we got the Bible, overviews of each book of the Bible, really well done, really visually compelling. Uh, encourage you to check those out uh, with your kids. They're on YouTube as well. Uh, you can jump on there. All right, a couple of more things. Somebody asked a question about 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I believe they didn't list the exact reference, uh, but I believe it's the section that says where Paul says, like beginning in verse six, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. And then a little later, he says, uh, for instance, in verse 10, to the married, I give this charge. And then in parentheses, not I, but the Lord, right? So uh, uh, to the married, I give this charge. He's saying, I don't give it, but the Lord does. And then later he says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Uh, delineating. And so that is confusing, the language there and the translation issues that are there are, are challenging as well for some folks. But I believe what that means is he's literally speaking about the Lord in, in the person of Jesus. So what he's saying there is, is, and so the person asked the question, a friend of mine said, don't meditate on that part of scripture because like Paul's saying, it's not authoritative. I don't believe that's what Paul's saying. I believe what he's saying is I don't have a direct quote from Jesus on this one, Right. So, but he did on the other. When Jesus spoke about marriage and divorce, he's directly quoting Jesus. On this other, he's saying, I don't have a quote, direct quote from Jesus on this, but this is the principle that applies. Does that help you? All right, so he's not saying that what Paul says is not authoritative, right? But we all know in scripture, there are imperatives. That's the language, right? Which means it's a command. 
This is something that we are to do. There are other things in Scripture that are what we would call, right, descriptions. They're, they're descriptive, not prescriptive, right? Not everything in the Bible is a command. Not every verb is an imperative. So it's still all of God's word for us, and it's all instructive and helpful. There are things that are singled out as commands. You are called to do this. You are called to behave in this way. You are called to follow through. And so I believe that's, that's the interpretation of 1 Corinthians 7. Hopefully that's helpful to you. Um, one that bubbled to the top just for some fun. Some of you ask about Culver's. And I know that's a subject of immense theological importance. Let me tell you the quick story. There's a Culver's crew that's amongst us. They meet at Culver's to load up on burgers and milkshakes before they come to Coffee House Theology, okay? Now, I'm not going to call any names or look in any particular directions, all right? But a uh, quick funny story. So if you'll remember several months ago, I shared a quick illustration about my own expectations. And I told a story about preaching a funeral for a family. And I knew that that family was pretty wealthy. And they rewarded me for preaching that funeral with a Applebee's gift card that was partially used, right? Like, so, and, and so, I, you know, the point was, was that I, I don't ask for any money for funerals, so I shouldn't have had expectations, but maybe I did just a little bit. So I'm not really pointing fingers at the family. I'm saying that was on me. I had some expectations. And so, lo and behold, I receive a stack of envelopes in my mailbox here at the church. And I begin to open this up from the Culver's crew. It contains a series of $10 Culver's gift cards with a note from each of these families. Thanks for that sermon illustration. We would like to prepay our funeral expenses at the church at Station Hill. So if you want to know, are there some pranksters among us? There most definitely are. And, uh, and so the great part is, is man, my kids begging for some fast food. I got them taken care of. I got those things stashed in my dash and we run through Culver. So anyway, a little fun with that one right there. And that's where that, for some of you are like, what, what is going on there? That's where we're at. All right, we got the Paul question answered. Let's see if anything else popped up. Uh, here's one that I did not see. Um, why does our church use the CSB Bible versus other versions? A couple of different reasons. So uh, if you know the CSB, that is produced by Broadman and Holman, which is Lifeway Christian Resources, which is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. We're affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. We're a Southern Baptist church. Uh, and so it's a trusted translation. Uh, it comes from a translation team, just like other reliable New Testament translations. Uh, it's, it is good. I've handled it and used it for several years now. Prior to the CSB, we used the HCSB, uh, which was the Holman Christian Standard Bible, better known as the Hardcore Southern Baptist version, right? That was my favorite. Uh, little nicknames like the NIV. We call that the nearly inspired version, right? Uh, and uh, the ESV, the elect standard version, because it's the one preferred by Reformed churches. Uh, but the reality is, and we'll talk a little bit more about Bible translations in two weeks when we talk about interpretations, but there's a range that, of, of decision-making that translators have to go through. Uh, and so they can choose to try to be really woodenly literal to the Greek and the Hebrew, which makes for a really awkward read in English. And as you know, some ideas, ideas don't translate well culture to culture. On the other end of the spectrum, you'd have what we call paraphrases. That's where guys are trying to just really loosely capture the idea, okay? Somewhere in the middle, you have the translations, and the term that they, they use for it is dynamic equivalency. That's where they're trying to balance out the two. I mentioned in my sermon on Sunday, right, the, the word behold was used, you know, over a thousand times in the old King James because people talked that way in 1611. Behold, I need to use the restroom, right? I mean, we just don't talk that way anymore. 
And so that's part of the challenge of modern translations is they have to try to keep up with the trends in language and linguistics, but at the same time be true to the Greek and the Hebrew. And so that's why every few years, right, translations come out. And the CSB just happens to be one of the most recent and a very, very well done translation. The other reality for us, a couple of practical considerations. One is we can get CSB Bibles for free for our mission efforts and to pass out here at church from Lifeway. Number two, is, is that we give CSB Bibles to our children and to our students. And so as a pastor, I remember as a kid, as the pastor got up, if they read out of something different than what I had, I had a hard time keeping up. So that way we're just consistent across the board. And sometimes you'll hear me say things like in the sermon, like CSB trans- translates it this way. I-, I think this is a little stronger. I'd prefer to word it this way based on my study. Uh, but for the most part, it's a really solid, readable, dynamic, equivalent uh, translation that can be trusted. And I would say if you're looking to invest in a good study Bible, the CSB is, is one of the best on the market. Uh, that and the ESV study Bibles are the two that I own. Uh, and so I would encourage you to consider investing in that. And of course, all of you digital people, there's digital versions uh, of all of those available as well. Let me say this is about study Bibles. Remember that what's above the line, in other words, the text of the Bible is inspired. The notes are not, okay? They're supposed to be helpful tools, right? But they, they are not the inspired word of God. None of them are perfect. All right, Brian, let's see. Uh, one more popped up here. What would you say that the continuity of the canon helps to give us confidence that we have it right, like Hebrews? Would you say that the continuity of the canon helps to give us confidence that we have it right? Well, is that basically so that every, um, so what you're saying is there's the, that's the orthodoxy, right? That there's a consistent theology throughout the canon. And so the principles that are taught in Hebrews are the same principles, right? Same theology, same view of Christ, same view of God that we see consistently through the other New Testament works. And so I actually think some of the deepest teachings about Christ are, and certainly about faith, right, come out of Hebrews. And so, yeah, I would, I would say that that's that orthodoxy criteria for it, it being joined in the canon. That's great. All right, let me close with this tonight as we wrap up. Uh, One of my favorite uh, scriptures is Psalm 1. Uh, It's just a few verses, but I absolutely love what it says about the word of God, right? right. (laughs) Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That word meditate in Hebrew is the word hagah, which means devour, right? So he, right, who walks with the Lord, devours, feasts on the word. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And we are grateful for God's word that leads us in the way of the righteous. Let's close in prayer tonight. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we have your word. Thank you that you are the word made flesh and that the two are inseparable. And so we are so grateful for your revelation to us by which we can know you. And we're grateful for the process by which you used your servants to breathe out your words to us so that we could breathe them in, so that they could become a part of us and so that we could live and move and have our being by your very truth. 
And so, Lord, I pray that tonight increases our confidence in the words that we have, that they are words of life, words of light, words of grace, words of truth, as it says in John chapter 1. Thank you for this time that we've had together tonight. We look forward to continue to explore the the wonders and the mysteries and the depths of your word uh, in the coming weeks. We love you, Lord Jesus. Be with us until we gather together as your church again. Find us faithful to not just be hearers of your word, but to be doers of your word as well. And it's in your name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a good evening.